Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar, a listener Q&A show. Oh boy, it's been a busier than expected Monday evening. Got news from the Aero McLaren team that young Davey Malukas, Chicago Davey, a.k.a. Lil Dave, done fractured his hand while out here out west this past weekend doing some mountain biking training which is pretty common for drivers some sort of whether it's road cycling or mountains biking or something along those lines pretty normal and so sadly every couple of years at most we hear about a driver who while again on the road somewhere or in the mountains somewhere took a dive fractured a finger broke a wrist broke a hand Renus VK comes to mind as someone who had that happen, unfortunately, just a couple years ago, but can run back the list. Uh, it is not uncommon. So sadly, we're now having to ask whether young Davey Malukas will indeed be able to make his IndyCar debut at the intended event here just under a month away, March 8th through 10th, at St. Petersburg. Point that I mentioned here in the story on Racer that went up just a little while ago, recording this at about 6.30ish on a Monday evening, is it's not to me so much the recovery time to get to St. Pete. It's that about two weeks after surgery, there is a big paddock-wide every driver test at Sebring where for the first time, every driver in their own dedicated IndyCar with their race engineer and their crew, everyone in their own machine with their exact people they'll go racing with in 2024, there's a two-day test at Sebring where that is meant to happen. So Davey, I believe, along with most of the drivers in the paddock, got a chance to do one day in the 2024 spec chassis that is using the lightweight materials and such but minus the heavy energy recovery system the indycar is due to introduce middle of summer that lighter weight chassis performs a little different and not nothing massive but you see it in the lap time you see it a little bit in the car behavior everybody got for the most part one day in that configuration across a multi-day test at homestead miami what's coming up here february 26 27 i believe are the days at sebring all of the 27 full-time entries and for the first time every driver in their own car getting to really go hard burrow in get to know these 2024 lightweight without the energy recovery system chassis packages it's that one where could davy survive without doing it yes would he be at a disadvantage to every other driver as a result of missing it if he's unable to do so without a doubt so speaking with the aero mclaren team here and i think uh, this news landed around 5 p.m pacific 8 eastern 
I saw it a few minutes later while out doing my daily walk, just looking at my phone and email was like, oh, hey, uh, they're going to do what you would expect. Wait for Davey to go through surgery on Tuesday. Hear what the surgeon has to say about the severity of the fracture, how long it will take for Davey to recover. Again, projected, right? Always have to keep in mind, could be a little faster, could be a little slower. He's young and in great shape, so you'd have to think that plays to his benefit in terms of recovery time. But depending on how bad the fracture is and how much metal plating or screws or, again, whatever it is that they have to do to fix and heal, and however long the surgeon says that will take to get him back to a place where he can get into a two-hour-long fist fight with an Indy car, which is what it's like driving one of these cars on a street course. Maximum downforce, very quick turns, very hard and immediate loading of the steering wheel all through one's hands and wrists, all arms and upper body. But again, it's the, it's the hands, the wrists, the fingers that take immense punishing lap after lap wielding thousands upon thousands of downforce with no power steering. If the opening race was at Texas Motor Speedway or some other oval, wouldn't be too much of a concern. Not sure which hand it is, left or right. Nonetheless, knowing that we're opening the season on a street course and it is having to wrestle and fight the steering wheel and heavy kickback, Drivers have these huge blisters on their hands we usually see, especially in the opening races. So their the skin on their palms toughens and is weathered appropriately to deal with this. They go through six plus months of the off season of not really dealing with that. Knowing the physical punishment IndyCar drivers with perfectly healthy hands go through to open the season, this is just where the concern comes in. Surgery on Tuesday, almost a month to recover before he'd have to drive at St. Pete, but only about two weeks for where he'd want to be at Sebring. Outcome of the surgery, going to tell us a ton. Ask the team, hey, Zach Veach, I know he was mentioned as a reserve driver last year. Is that still the case? Could be he be a candidate? Was told yes, could be a candidate. Would expect his name to be in there for sure. Who else is out there? Pretty obvious ones, right? Oliver Askew, uh, I believe, I don't know if it's Aaron McLaren or another team, but carries his spare seat to every race just in case there is a need, which he stepped in very ably for the team back in what? Was it 2020, I think, 2021, whichever year when Felix Rosenqvist had his huge crash um, and was able to step in and drive right away. Uh, Callum Eilat is another who comes to mind where without drumming up this old story too much, there was great interest by Errol McLaren to sample him throughout the 2024 season as he was intended to drive for Hunkos Hollinger Racing. Obviously, he and the team decided to not keep racing have Romain Groschamp in that seat, which is fantastic, but that does leave Callum Eilat the best IndyCar free agent I can possibly think of 
sitting out there available, someone who the Aero McLaren team absolutely wanted to work with this season, get a feel for. I am just pulling up because I should have done that beforehand. Take a quick look at the FIA WEC calendar. And in theory, he'd be able to do both the test if needed. Uh, it'd be a quick flight from the prologue um, in Qatar, the WEC, where he's driving for uh, Proton in the hypercar class in a Porsche 963 hybrid. And then the opening race for the WEC is right back at the same place on March 2nd. So calendar-wise, both the test and the race would appear to be options. The race specifically has a lot more clear runway for him, but again, you hope that's not a need, but knowing an Aero McLaren, even if the surgeon says it's nothing, you'll be just fine in a week, I would absolutely expect them to get at least one driver spooled up and ready in case there is a need. Saw a question or two from some others asking, could Tony Kanon be an option, knowing he's sporting director, driver, coach, and all kinds of things at Aero McLaren? Knowing that Tony retired from IndyCar Racing after uh, the last Indy 500, uh, I don't think so. Would say if this happened to be an oval, might be a slightly different scenario. Tony is one of the fittest human beings on the planet, full of muscle and all kinds of stuff, works out like an animal. But at the same time, there is a bit of a difference in being race fit for an Indy car. Not talking about other cars, I'm talking specifically all the aforementioned, this is like getting into a fist fight for two hours straight, that it's like driving an Indy car at the limit. Being able to get himself in the kind of readiness he would want in such a somewhat short amount of time to go back to racing an IndyCar on a street course, I don't know if Tony would want to do that just because he never wants to do a thing just to do a thing. He wants to do it knowing he could go out and win. Considering his competitive mindset, I don't know if he would think that was enough time to truly get into that place but never say never last one that came to mind kyle larson aaron mclaren driver coming up here mclaren hendrick hendrick mclaren driver at the indy 500 i haven't looked at the nascar cup schedule but i just assume he's going to be super busy early season uh he's not exactly a road racing animal never road raced an indy car or tested an indy car on a road course to my knowledge and while i love it uh, and it'd be an amazing kick to the season and draw tons of attention if he's free um yeah i still don't think it would be the wisest decision because that's it's like taking a lifelong road racer basically and saying hey what about dumping you into the daytona 500 with limited to almost no testing experience to try and master this radically different creature um not saying it's never happened before just saying that it rarely happens at least in the modern era with any kind of success attached to it so hoping there's no need 
hoping everything turns out perfectly for little Dave. But yeah, a uh, little bit of adversity already, but I definitely would uh, expect the Aaron McLaren team to have everything super ready to go, uh, whether he can race or can't. And uh, stay tuned, more to follow. And before we get to uh, the rest of our little intro, here's this. Time to say a big thank you to our show partners on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, starting with FAF Technologies, build-to-print composites manufacturing company. They're specializing in medium-to-large-scale automotive, motorsports, and military applications. Visit faftechnologies.com. It's P-F-A-F-F technologies.com to learn more about their services and how they can benefit your business. Next, it's the Justice Brothers, makers of premium additives, lubricants, and cleaners, and servicing the automotive and motorsports industries for more than 85 years, with victories in all the biggest North American motor races, including the Indianapolis 500, the 24 Hours of Daytona. The Justice Brothers products are truly race-proven. Learn about their vast history and range of offerings at justicebrothers.com. If you're fond of awesome motor racing collectibles, including FAF Motorsports McLaren gear and goodies, pay a visit to torontomotorsports.com. And finally, we have a new online merchandise home for the podcast, thepruittstore.com. For all the show stickers, models, racing memorabilia I'm trying to sell and put towards our fun to buy a house is now live and rocking, thepruittstore.com. All right. Well, thanks again to many of y'all, and I do mean many of y'all, for visiting the Pruitt store, which just opened, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe. And it's starting to pick up a little bit of pace. I appreciate that. Like genuinely, when I say it is something we are wanting and hoping to use to help us to buy a house, there's also some other things maybe go a little bit unsaid about hoping to cover off uh, some medical bills and that kind of stuff. And yeah, uh, those still show up uh, despite uh, our requesting of the male person to not give them to us. Yeah, they still show up and you open some of them and you're like, what? <laughs> uh, your eyes kind of water and go, well, I guess I'm not sleeping for the next few weeks. Cause uh, I'm picking up as many jobs as I can, but Hey, that's uh I mean, to quote Juan Montoya, it is what it is. So last little note here on the Pruitt store, I do have some new stickers to add and some other models and uh, that kind of stuff to add. But I was just going to say, greatly appreciate all of y'all that have bought the Honda-inspired, Honda-created uh, or imaginated uh, Gilles de Ferran tribute stickers. Uh, both the round kind of classic ones and the larger, uh, more artsy, beautiful ones as well. And yeah, a lot of those have been going out. So appreciate y'all. Um, also just got uh, a arrival of the smaller two-inch round stickers, more for helmets and, I don't know, drink bottles and other things. So um if any of y'all want to pick up more of the DeFerrin larger four-inch round stickers or the almost uh, four-inch tall, nine-inch wide, more artsy tribute ones, uh, I'll happily just throw in one of the smaller two-inch uh, round stickers just as a thank you. So there you go. Uh, with all that said, 
feels like we need to jump into your questions. I'm not going to give you a time prediction for the episode because I always fail, but just know in the back of my mind, these all last an hour less because that's what I aspire towards. And I also know that I suck at time. And um, y'all, for the most part, have been very kind and accommodating in my limited ability to tell time. So with that said, a huge thank you to y'all for everything you sent in and to our pal Jerry Sudduth, who puts them together. Jerry tells us not a super heavy week, 20 questions, wide array of topics. I also put out the call for questions a bit later than usual, so apologies there as well. Uh, I got a lot of stuff to file, though, Uh, a lot of stuff to file. So I feel like next week's episode is probably going to be more than 20 questions. Um, Craig Johnson. MP, need some clarification about the hybrid test at Homestead. If I read the article correctly, it sounds like the hybrid cars ran about the same lap time as the non-hybrid cars. Is that a function of Homestead's layout? So I was hoping to see a a more significant gap between the two types of powertrains. With them being so close, it kind of seems like, well, so what? Maybe I'm biased by the apparent success of IMSA's new GTP cars and the success of the new chassis and power units over there. Great opening question, Craig, and thanks once again to Jerry for not only putting the questions together, but putting them in an entertaining order, hopefully. So I'm totally with you, Craig. Just should also say I abandoned such things that you're hoping for here a long time ago. So... If you are just recently learning about and catching up on IndyCar's upcoming move to hybridization, you may indeed be disappointed to learn that at the most recent test, and there's another one coming up, I think, next week, but at the first big test of the hybrid, full hybrid chassis spec and full hybrid powertrain in 2024, following about three months down, where a lot of improvements and and whatnot were made to the system. The big advancement, Craig, and the rejoiceful, if that's the way to put it, development was they were about the same speed as the non-hybrid cars. That was the big, yeah, along with the reliability that they had over the... uh, couple days of testing this is a meaningful thing to know my friend because up until this test seemingly just about everywhere they went to test on a road course the tracks that might replicate a street course they were a couple seconds slower like kind of two seconds slower maybe a little bit closer but for the most part about two seconds slower, just about everywhere. Uh, never got speeds, like official speeds, when they did the Indianapolis Motor Speedway test. I'm failing to remember exactly what they were. I did learn what most of them were, and they were down. Um, dealing with a pretty heavy system, the, the ERS, Energy Recovery System, it is a big old wedge of weight. That's new. 
cool thing IndyCar's done. Most of y'all might know this, but cool thing IndyCar's done to try and offset that big bowling ball of weight sitting between the engine and transmission that's new is they've said, well, the bell housing, the, the bridge between the engine and transmission, we're going to change the material from aluminum to lighter magnesium. And the part that's particularly heavy and robust, the aluminum transmission case, that is being made in magnesium. And a decent amount of weight's been taken off the back of the car. Not enough to totally neutralize the weight of the ERS, but a decent amount. 30 to 36 pounds is the estimation. I've heard it's closer to 31, but exactly how much the energy recovery system weighs in isolation still trying to get that number but uh it's been slower and the chassis balance wasn't as great with all the changes in the 2024 spec that just tested here recently and was as quick as it was the fact that it had pace and the fact that it had reliability, Craig, that was the big win. The underlying thing we can't ignore, though, is despite the attempts at light weighting and changing some of the materials from aluminum to magnesium to do that, we're still adding weight. And the car, <laughs> kind of in ready-to-race trim with the fuel tank almost entirely full was already pushing nearly 2,000 pounds, which, you know, I don't want to say the most ever, because I'm positive there were some in the teens, in the 20s and 30s, and mostly back then, um, maybe the 40s a little bit, uh, back in the Indy 500's formative decades that were just big, heavy bricks but we're truly looking at cars that are tipping the scales at just about the highest numbers ever and that conspires against speed lap time you name it so since we're not talking about insane horsepower um lightweight chassis and such that's where this experiment getting to a place where we're hearing, hey, we're matching, or I think Kirkwood probably with all the push to pass enabled, both turbo and the energy recovery system deploying, which would take the horsepower output to an estimated 850 to 860 horsepower in four to five second bursts, a couple times a lap, once or twice at most, maybe. Um, got it to about a tenth faster than the quickest lightweight non-hybrid cars testing at Homestead about a week before in January. So I don't expect the hybrid cars to debut if they do end up debuting this year or even if it's at St. Pete next year. I don't go into things expecting them to worry and trouble the existing track records um the horsepower comes up 
on the ERS side in the coming years, as I'm told they expect it to, then maybe we start to deploy enough added horsepower on top of what the internal combustions make to where you go, okay, I don't know if these things are just murdering the high-speed corners because they're so heavy and they're also so rear-heavy, but, boy, uh, you get that hybrid powertrain humming and all the power hitting the ground, these things should be pretty darn quick out of corners um, and getting to their top speeds faster. Maybe the one big area to think of. Normally, when I think of Indy cars and I think of speed, it's go to the kink here or uh, something super fast at a mid-Ohio Road America and so on. Go to some of the faster third, fourth, fifth gear corners and just watch them and wow, it's so impressive. Or if we're talking ovals in particular or any road or street course with a long straight, go look at them towards the end of those straights. Big, huge air being punched and moved and you feel it and the sounds are amazing. We won't necessarily see IndyCar's going a whole bunch faster top speed wise, but with the deployment of full hybrid powertrain punch, all the engine internal combustion engine, all the energy recovery side, even with the turbo push to pass added in coming off of some of the slower corners, for example, that instant torque from the ERS side, that electric motor providing instant torque is going to be a big acceleration improvement. And so because of that, like I said, I'm not expecting the top speeds to drastically change, but what we should see, especially if you're a fan of drag racing and know, is the elapsed times in getting to that top speed will improve. So rather than take longer, say, coming out of the hairpin at Long Beach for power to really get put to the ground and the cars to take off and accelerate hard down shoreline drive into that turn one braking zone thanks to the ers units provided the drivers are deploying them coming off of the hairpin there's going to be a lot more initial scoot off of those corners kind of fixing the part where the internal small displacement 2.2 liter internal combustion engines aren't really capable of giving a big punch of torque to rock it off of the corners uh, like a dragster. So knowing that those small displacement motors that we have take a moment to kind of spin up and build revs, and that's really when the turbos start to wake up and make a lot of power and put torque to the ground, knowing that we have these energy recovery systems saying, hey, <laughs> I'll do that for you. I'll be the, the big torque addition in this dead zone that we've just had to live with. It's there, honestly, Craig, where I'd say lap time is probably seeing the most improvement uh, in hybrid configuration because we get to really fire off of the slower corners better and thereby get to the top speeds faster and then hold those top speeds or longer into the until they get to the braking zone. So 
cool stuff in there. What I would recommend to fans, like hardcore fans, wherever you're able to, once hybrids arrive, get to the track and get up close to some of the slower speed corners and just watch. Because at least to start, we're only talking about an added 60 horsepower from the ERS side. So it's not crazy, but it's enough. It, it, it really does something. And knowing that we're doing this torque fill to help that acceleration, we should see drivers having to scramble a bit, feed a bit more opposite lock and manage things with their right foot since we don't have traction control. But getting things hooked up and rocketing off of corners should be more impressive than we have ever had since this new formula debuted in 2012. And also, if you're a fan of top speeds or just IndyCars running as fast as they can, like I said, we're not necessarily talking about the top speed climbing. We're just talking more about they're going faster for longer down the straight. So that too, pretty cool. Uh, that's our deep dive to open the show. Thanks again for the question, Craig. Uh, our pal Cassie Johnston, a.k.a. at mama underscore G-Force. Follow her on the socials, please, y'all. She says, hey, MP, I'm excited to be heading back to Milwaukee this year. I'm curious if you've heard any news on the infrastructure updates they were planning to do part of the event. I know there were some safety and logistical concerns that needed to be addressed. Need to reach out and see where these things are at, Cassie. Um, what's a, a good way to put this? We're at the point in the year where these are super valid and important questions. They also come at a time where kind of ramping up for the new season and what's immediately ahead of us. So asking these questions now, not a problem. Awesome. Keep doing it. Had a related Milwaukee question come in. About a week ago, I think, yeah, last Monday maybe, or who, no, I take it back, the week before, the Friday, got the first batch of racer mailbag questions, and in there was a question about Milwaukee and hospitality, right? Hey, a person in California said he'd like to go, but really only if there's some sort of available hospitality suite or some kind of elevated experience, you know, he's older and, and able to spend uh, as desired but really wanted to know what kind of packages do they have in the works i can't find anything on the website and otherwise but what do they have uh and asked and it took if you count the friday ask i think took the better part of five to six days to get an answer so um i will do my best to get an answer for you here jerry if you can please chuck this uh, back into next week's episode and i will ask the good folks there involved with running the miliwake event and i'm cutting and pasting this into an email so this way i don't forget and uh appreciate you asking back to you next week dear cassie our pal matt philpot says marshall hope you and chabrell are doing well we are thanks brother so recently, Kyle Larson had a test at Phoenix. I'm curious, <clears throat> are one-off drivers or entry like him subject to the same testing limitations that the full-time teams are? Uh, he is, 
and no matter who he is, he is, uh, I am told, and this would be since the team has its full season roster lined up and ready to go, and no need that I can think of to do an evaluation test, which is a one form of testing teams are allotted by the series. They get a limited number of those, I think one or two per season. Uh, they used a evaluation test for young Kyle Larson. And indeed, he apparently passed the test, and they decided they want to do more with him. No, kidding aside. Uh, yeah, they worked within their means, used one of the available test days they have from IndyCar. They can pick and choose uh, who they want to use, and that's what they did. So got Kyle some extra testing time, uh, heard some stories about it. Didn't actually go into the story that uh, I wrote and others wrote after we had a Zoom session with Kyle uh, the morning after the test. But, yeah, uh, it sounded awesome. And the team is, as you would expect, really blown away by his talent. So if you think about the test he did at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, uh, big deal did super well, new to him. Keep in mind, at Indy, the car does a lot of the work. It is very much an aerodynamic exercise. Um, the car does a lot of the work, right? We see that every year. A driver who might be nowhere all season long shows up to Indy. The team does a great job, and all of a sudden, the person who was qualifying 25th at the previous event is p7 or something along those lines it's not as if a driver qualifying 25th for an indycar race isn't immensely talented like one of the most talented race car drivers in the world but at least among indycar drivers when you're 25th one weekend and then again whatever 7th 10th 12th at the indy 500 you know the person didn't magically get better in a span of one or two weeks it's the car so kyle being as amazing as he is on ovals, no matter how well he did at Indy, the car, especially with a lot of downforce piled on, so it just felt safe and comfortable, was never going to give him a real opportunity to show his general badassery. And so just listening to the team talk about uh, working with him at Phoenix, running into the night, uh, and his car control and feel on a short oval where the car is moving around a lot and more of the driver is truly shown through its performance each lap they were just <laughs> as you would expect blown away so it's really cool to hear that and yeah i'm hoping he has an amazing indy 500 and enough so that he says uh, mr hendrick uh, how about we do that again and more uh, in 2025. Uh, Eric Franklin, how you doing, Eric? Says, thanks for the great explanation on the technical side on how the hybrid system works. Uh, your ESPN article last week was helpful in that regard. But it raised a question I had after renting an electric vehicle and driving, driving it in an, quote, aggressive manner on a winding road. Eric asks, how much adjusting will drivers need to make to their braking due to the drag created by charging the system? 
said, I struggled with the fact that there was an immediate braking effect just by lifting the accelerator. Because I can't imagine how screwy that would feel trying to find an apex on a timed lap. Uh, I didn't happen to see this question before I started recording, Eric. Sometimes I see about half of them. Um, but I love the fact that you asked this because three, no, two hours ago, I was on the phone with a dear friend who's an IndyCar race engineer to ask more about this specific thing. Uh, because if you're not a fan of racing technology, I apologize because this episode is certainly opening um, after the uh, poor Davy Malukas thing on pretty much mostly technical fronts. Um, so let's talk about IMSA first. And I think a decent amount of other hybrid system or series or, or fully electric series or, or some, well, let's just go with the hybrid. We have a situation where in IMSA, knowing that the cars are a little bit heavier, definitely lighter on downforce tires, not as big by any means. Um, we have a situation where under braking in a IMSA hybrid GTP car, there's the potential for its energy recovery system, which makes about 67 horsepower. Indy cars is meant to be at about 60 uh, for its opening season. Makes about the same, a little bit more though, a little bit more horsepower. So it's definitely recharging harvesting heavily under braking um they in imsa also the wec because these this formula is used there too but we'll just stick with imsa uh, the formula written has said okay this is a pretty big intervention this is a pretty abrupt shift of we're braking and front wheels front tires front discs and calipers and same thing at the rear they're all clamping trying to slow the car down in a balanced predictable manner once that energy recovery system that giant metal bowling ball that weighs a ton uh in the bell housing starts spinning up engaged with the transmission to spin at a crazy high speed and generate electricity which gets sent and stored in the battery electronic horsepower basically that'll then get sent back and deployed as as additional power once that mgu spins up uh it adds a pretty decent amount of extra braking force so if you're just thinking about going quickly in your road car whether it's a hybrid or not and you want to be the last of the late breakers going into whatever corner on the way to work, you'll go really quick, find the point where your bravery runs out, and stomp on that brake pedal. And you'll rely on your car to brake at the front, brake at the back, and make whatever adjustments necessary, assuming it's anti-lock braking, which most road cars, if not all, seem to have. There are some electronics at work that will say, oh boy, uh, if there's too much braking force up front, 
You send that to the back and balance things so we don't lock up tires, but we also get maximum braking performance. Hybrid GTP car does the same thing, but it has that electronic intervention. Very simple, very, very simple. That says, okay, we're going to add a bit of an uh, electronic management system that says once the hybrid recovery starts, once the MGU adds itself to this braking event and then adds extra braking force to the rear, we're going to risk the potential of locking the rear brakes. And so you have this added hybrid GTP brake management system that engages. It has what's called drive-by-wire brakes, and it is just that, a electronic system that says we're monitoring the braking force. We have the MGU just starting to harvest. What do we need to do? to dial down the rear braking force through the pedal and compensate and balance things out knowing that the MGU is doing some of that for us. So as a result, tons of time spent in IMSA by wickedly smart PhD-level engineers, it seems like, to come up with these braking maps. And it's all about mapping the intervention, and the adjustment of braking pressure. And maybe throughout a run, as the brakes get a little more worn, there might be adjustments to that map, how aggressive or non-aggressive the balance shift under braking changes front to rear. Could have a preference difference by driver to driver, since IMSA is a multi-driver formula. But just know that there's a really smart set of options Drivers can adjust on the steering wheel to affect how much braking force across the four wheels is distributed front to rear, all to compensate for that extra braking help the MGU provides, whether you like it or not. In IndyCar, there is no brake-by-wire. There is no electronic intervention. And yet, the amount of MGU energy harvesting is at a very similar level to IMSA GTP. We have bigger tires. We have more downforce. Those things help for sure. Effort to reduce costs by not implementing a drive-by-wire system in IndyCar, but I am telling you that if they had, you'd probably have teams wouldn't be happy to spend the money, but they would be happier with the ability to create these maps and have multiple options to use as needed. So what do you do in IndyCar? Well, you have teams that work very hard, harder than ever now, because they have to, to come up with braking profiles, looking at the data looking at how much pressure is sent to the front, how much to the rear, how much the MGU gets involved, 
and then fine-tuning the manual brake bias, the, let me call it, non-electronic brake bias in how much is dialed to the front, how much is dialed to the rear, and it is something that teams and IndyCar are having to deal with manually. There's one other aspect as well. It's just worthy in comparing it back to IMSA on the hybrid GTP side. The whole goal with the brake-by-wire electronic brake pressure management involvement when the MGU is harvesting is it replicates a feel for the drivers. I'm not saying it's perfect. And there are four different GTP models out there right now, soon to be five, then there'll be more. But it's not like it's identical across an accurate BMW, Cadillac, or Porsche. And it's not like it is truly no different. But the brake-by-wire software and mapping is meant to give the drivers as close to a feeling of normal braking, like the car wasn't a hybrid, as possible stomp on the pedal the electronics work their magic and if the system is mapped correctly you know it's harvesting feel that little lurch of it kind of pulling you back a little bit but it's not insane in indycar you feel it teams do their best since they don't have electronic options they do the manual brake bias adjustment, which again, they've been refining to try and figure out the exact best place to put settings, and they'll be doing that and working that out from track to track. But you have a thing that IMSA drivers don't really have to do to the same level, and that is IndyCar drivers using their left foot for braking to effectively act like their own computer system fire into the brakes really hard to get that initial bite as the MGU kicks in. And again, it's not like there's a big gap waiting for it. It's more or less instantaneous or can be instantaneous. Driver then, if needed, having to modulate pressure or pull back a little bit if there's a feeling of locking and such. So that's going to be another thing. Not every driver is as great as the next at being the last of the late breakers or there are some who truly have turned it into an art and most are amazing at it so don't get me wrong it's not like there's only two or three who are incredible and the rest are average just saying this is another thing the move to hybrid is bringing to indycar since they the series chose not to introduce drive by wire uh, it is incumbent upon the drivers to kind of, sort of, be their own drive-by-wire. Um, Ryan Bailey, see a question that just came in uh, asking to compare and contrast the uh, two types of hybrids, uh, the one in GTP and the one in IndyCar. Um, absolutely. Jerry, if you could grab that uh, here, I think it's 7.29 p.m., uh, 1029 p.m. your time on a Monday. If you could grab that for next week. Um, absolutely, Ryan. And just, I guess, good that I happen to look back here. Um, where should we go next? Indy Nathan. Hey, this is kind of a fun hybrid themed thing. And I guess, Ryan, your question would be perfect right now, but I don't want to 
bore too many people with this. Who knows? Maybe you're not bored. You never know. Uh, our pal Indy Nathan says, are there still plans to use the push to pass in any form on ovals with the hybrids? Or has that been scrapped? Uh, to my knowledge, I don't know. <laughs> um, I asked about this specifically on the oval side about a week ago and was told let's check back on that now if a decision's been made and someone else reported it since then i apologize i haven't seen it uh nathan but i do know it is certainly turbo push to pass plus energy recovery system boost once we go hybrid for all road and street courses the exact plan for the ovals i don't know I do know that the ERS side, yes, 100% on all ovals. Once we go hybrid, it's going to be hybrid everywhere. That's not the question. The thing I don't know is whether the turbo push to pass will be used on the ovals for the first-ish time, kind of like a standard routine. No yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens here for sure, just because I can't think of a reason to say no. We're doing this for the first time as standard form with a energy recovery system-based power addition. Why limit it to just one system if you have two, and you're going to use two at all the road and street courses? As my monkey brain works, Nathan... I would say, hey, once we go hybrid, it's both systems everywhere. But I have yet to hear from IndyCar if on ovals, the turbo side will also be retained. So um, that's a bit of a standby, and I am flagging your question to follow that up uh, again. Eric O'Brien says, with the delay of the hybrid power unit rollout until later in the season, is IndyCar keeping a plan in its back pocket? In case the rollout starts showing large-scale issues. See, obviously switching back to internal combustion only would be a nightmare for the teams, uh, but to have the championship tarnished by a front-runner impacted by power plant failures would be an embarrassment as well. I'm with you on that one for sure, and I've thought about that too. Um I've been good with IndyCar going hybrid mid-season and have said that and written that for one primary reason, Eric. And I'm now rethinking that a little bit. But the reason I've been good with that is, you might have heard me say before, there are a lot of senior executives across both Chevy and Honda who got their their bosses, the the giant VPs of this, that, and the other, to say, yes, we will invest in our making the energy recovery system to bail out IndyCar, help IndyCar, and also help our own initiative to race in the series. Because without hybridization, uh, it's not really relevant to us anymore, and we're probably going to go. So they got buy-off on that. It's a, a good investment. Those senior folks who asked for it and got it I think their behinds would be on the line if we don't go hybrid in 2024 because that's the thing they went to and pled to have happen and 
it has happened and that money's been committed and spent and IndyCar still wasn't ready to go hybrid to start the season. And it's been pushed back to after the biggest race of the year. And yeah, so from a not getting folks fired and whatnot, that's why I've been a big proponent of, okay, there's so many things about this that I don't like, but I'm just going to talk about the one thing, which is let's preserve the people who've made this happen and go hybrid middle of the season. As I wrote in my SPN column, all I've heard is that will be mid-Ohio. And I've not heard anything to tell me otherwise. So who knows if that location will change. But my conversation with McLaren Racing CEO Zach Brown, and I didn't raise this. He raised it on his own uh, of, I think we might be better off just holding this until 2025 a mid-season rollout isn't going to really help anyone. Sponsors know the hybridization's coming, so whether it's with seven races to go in the season or just next season, I think we might be better off in just holding this, and there's also a lot of kinks potentially to be worked out. Uh, It was a very persuasive argument that he made, and I fully agree with him now. Not that I want those folks I mentioned to get fired, just saying thinking about where it lands where it would land the time of the year and the fact that we have all the other big series and especially the ones that are bigger than indycar and command more headlines notably nascar and formula one but also imsa's right doing more business more people watching who knows what other series i'm forgetting indycar going hybrid in early-ish july well, all those other series are raging hard, got their own storylines. Who knows what they are, but you know they're going to dominate Twitter every day and dominate the headlines of pretty much every racing or sports site. Coming up with a scenario where IndyCars move to hybridization, leapfrogs all of that, <laughs> and becomes the headline-making thing where everyone in the sport's like, whoa, IndyCar's going hybrid or just went hybrid last weekend? Like IMSA did to start in 2023, and F1 did for all the cars in 2014, but really kind of in 2009 went hybrid. And hell, before that, there was some hybrid prototypes here in America a couple years before, and in Europe, like, just saying it's if the headline was IndyCar moves to hydrogen powered whatever's at mid Ohio, I think a lot more attention gets paid. I think automotive websites and magazines and those by and large are much bigger in terms of traffic, just general readership base than any racing uh, or most uh, a lot of the sports sites you go to i think that gets them to pay attention as i listened to zach and ran through more of the scenarios in my head knowing that i also have espn as a client that i have road and track as my oldest client uh, and have friends good friends who run sites from Jalopnik on down, Haggerty, Motorsport, like 
just ran through all the scenarios of like, okay, IndyCar did a thing at Mid-Ohio with some new technology for them. How would this resonate throughout the industry? Is this going to be something featured in the next car and driver, motor trend, auto week, or whatever? It might be a half page. It might be a quarter page. But I don't think it's going to be more than that. And on whatever digital outlets you like, I'm sure there'd be a note. I'm sure, again, obviously I've been covering this more than anybody else because it's my thing. But uh, other sites, I'm sure, will write about it. Probably won't understand most of it because these days most people in my profession don't know a thing about the tech side. But it's going to be a little tiny blip on the radar. And for that to be the culmination of five years work, this was first announced at the Indy 500 in May of 2019 and came after it was announced in 2018 at Indy, a new engine formula with no hybrid component. And I went to dear pal Jay Fry and said, brother, I love you, but oh my gosh, how did IndyCar just announced a new engine formula coming in a couple years that isn't hybrid when hybridization's already feeling a little bit like old news? And after some pressure was applied from far more influential folks than I, than me, it was re-announced the following year. Hey, we're doing that engine thing we mentioned but now it's hybrid and it'll be here in another year or two and then a bunch of delays and so five years after it was announced it would be debuting at mid-ohio in the middle of the racing season when it's going to be darn near impossible to get folks to really stand up and care just to close here uh, and I'll come back to answering your question very quickly, Eric. Sorry, a little bit of just a wider view to share. You only get to do this once, right? You only get to make a big deal out of this new horizon, new venture, new technical foray. You only get to get that punch once, afterwards you go to the next race and you go to toronto and you go to gateway and you go to no i mean again it'll be a component hey there's hybrids racing indy cars racing here for the first time and i get it it'll be spoken about but is it going to make any headlines afterwards unless they're of the exact kind you mentioned brother like that segue i just came up with it new hybridization causes championship leader new garden polo dixon pato whomever to go up in smoke at whatever race a championship lead lost through no fault of their own this only gets mentioned a second time and a third time or a fourth time if there are problems so that's part of what zach was saying and zach of part of what i'm kind of agreeing with here hey it's not as if there's a guarantee no problems would be happen, happening if the debut is held until St. Pete 2025. But wow, that would give a lot of extra time in theory for more testing to be done. Bigger group tests, right, where there's 10 or 15 or who knows, 27 hybrids on track. And 
over however many days and we're just we want you to run and run and run and we want crash every curb do everything as hardcore as you can and any flaws that might be exposed we want them i sure like the sound of that after a season is played out call it organically then hey here's the new thing or it might not even be a front runner that has a problem eric it might be a back marker whose mgu decides to go nuclear or grind to a halt right in front of a leader as they're about to swing by and pass them and instead of passing uh they run into the back of the car and break their front suspension and i mean again i know we're talking theoreticals but that's the last big thing if we're gonna go nine or ten races non-hybrid boy this seems like a big roll the dice to introduce for what it could do to the championship complex over those final seven-ish races or so um to the the basic question here though drivers are going to be doing teams are going to be doing the first nine or ten races whatever the exact count is with the cars that will be full hybrid spec just minus that energy recovery system in the bell housing which i mentioned before there's some additional things that really go with making the ers work with the car right there's a cooling system that connects to the right side radiator and there's a new radiator for that and there's again some ers specific things that need to be uh that go along with just that lump in the bell housing right but they're running the car up until mid ohio or so in full configuration without it it makes the installation of it and the time roughly two weeks they have between or prior to mid ohio to make that full switch over timeline feasible um but having to yank it out of the cars if there were to be a big widespread issue like you mentioned um it'd take a little bit of time but it wouldn't be a showstopper if it happened between back-to-back race weekends it wouldn't be a case of like oh that second event's being delayed or canceled because no one can get their cars ready um not a concern that i can think of famous last words though uh marshall best to you and your wife and to the cats as well well thank you we had we had rosie along with us for uh the show but i guess she took off she said uh uh this is from chaparral j2 says if uh the push to pass and the hybrid systems are both going to be under driver control it seems an extra button will be needed on the steering wheel it does uh does this mean new steering wheels uh, it shouldn't uh or is there a way to add a button there is uh, is there already an unused one that can be assigned well keep in mind that there's no such thing as a spec steering wheel in indycar teams are permitted to drivers are permitted to use whatever they prefer um what you have and we've seen more of this is a rotary dial uh between guess the the grips of the steering wheel and the center of the steering wheel and the display itself so along with buttons there have been some little kind of thumb activated rotary dials that can be used and depending on what it is uh, i'm sure that whether reassigning something that was on a button to one of those rotaries or sticking of a button somewhere else 
uh, or even a switch if you wanted to be really cool. Like switches aren't much of a thing we've seen on steering wheels for a while in IndyCar. For all I know, they're illegal, but uh, should not be an issue. This is something that uh, teams have been using and testing already with both buttons. And yes, indeed, uh, activating both. Uh, that's the norm. So yeah, uh, you'll see that on the steering wheels for sure. Again, I'll have we'll have to take a look, but at least for the steering wheels that I saw at the Homestead uh, test day, uh, which I would assume would be the same they would use, uh, nothing looked radically different. But again, uh, we'll see in person here next time I get to see a hybrid IndyCar in action. At Lynn underscore IndyCar says, MP, will there be a big three in the 2024 championship? Or is it going to be Penske versus Ganassi again for the 14th straight year? And, oh boy, your question forms the hope of many of us. And I realize I'm a reporter and therefore impartial. But as a fan, <laughs> long before I was a reporter, I can tell you that the idea of more than two teams battling for championships seemingly every single year uh, was quite thrilling. Not always the case. Not saying that, like, there's a seven-way battle was ever really a thing. But the big three, as it's known, um, that was defined for the longest time. It's Penske, Ganassi, and Andretti. Only in recent years where Andretti has not taken up its place as the third member. Uh, it has fluctuated. Errol McLaren, for sure, uh, has jumped in. Pato specifically being the one to jump in and make their team that third, the P3, admittedly, in the big three. Thanks to Christian Lungard, Ray Hall, Edmund Lanigan also moved forward significantly in the championship fight. That would put them, I think, about fourth or so. And Andretti, I believe, was P5. If we're just talking teams and who were the farthest up in the championship, right? Obviously, we have Alex Pelot winning his second championship. We have... Scott McLaughlin coming in first for Penske. I think he was third overall in the championship. Yeah, and then we get into Pato, we get into Lungard, and then we get into Colton Herta. So will there be a big three? Absolutely. What are the odds of that being an Andretti taking their spot back? Overstating the obvious here, Lynn. They hope. <laughs> They're trying really hard. Uh, they were quick last season in preseason testing. They were quick yet again here in preseason testing already at Homestead. Uh, I mean, there, there's potential for sure. Do I feel more confident in saying Pato, who is just a monster when it comes to landing on the podium? has the best shot of keeping Errol McLaren in P3 of that big three? No question, without a doubt. Do I think Lungard and RLL are going to jump past Errol McLaren and Pato specifically to take P3? 
I do not. I think they'll be better, faster, and all those things, but that's a pretty big leap. Greatest question mark here? Again, bit of an obvious thing. It's in Dreddy Global. Uh, probably see me write this leading up to St. Pete. I know I've said it on the show here multiple times. Uh, this is the year of is he is or is he ain't. As my high school art teacher once said, is he is or is he ain't? Colton Herta. Um, love the kid. Who doesn't love the kid? Seen him just scare the living poop out of people. As a uh, uh, driver, part of that Harding Racing and Dreddy Alliance 2019 and again in 2020, right? Top three, top four of the championship. Wow. Since then, I don't fully know what's happening. Nor does the team, nor does Colton. But the outrageously fast, outrageously daring, and this kid's coming for wins, podiums, and a top three, four, five championship spot. We haven't seen that guy for the last two years at least that comes to mind will he re-emerge in 2024 that's a huge question for the overall competitiveness of andretti global and maybe not the most surprising thing to say it's a bit obvious but that's among the top couple of key things to watch this year over anything else Secondarily, and who knows, it might even be the primary thing. Kyle Kirkwood, new to the Andretti IndyCar team last season, had about as boom or a bust of a year as possible. He was either scaring the hell out of people and winning, or in the wall, his fault, not his fault, bad luck, penalty, just as up and down as could be and yet only finished one spot behind Colton in the championship. Only drive to win for Andretti, won twice. Uh, if the boomer bust can be smoothed out for good old Kirk Kirkwood, we might be seeing Andretti Global's new team leader among drivers. On past demonstrations, we know that should not be the case. It should be Colton. He has shown us he can be that guy. He came in and took Alexander Rossi's spot as P1 on the team. Clearly and emphatically, Rossi never came close to getting it back. Kirkwood, by championship position, was one down from Colton, so we can't say in the same evocative way he's number one at Andretti. Only guy to reach victory lane not once but twice. Uh, pole position lap as well, uh, which was just like cartoonish. Like, come on, man. Um, this is the year where Colton, after two down years, either rebounds and reminds us or gets cemented as P2 to Kyle Kirkwood. And I don't want that to happen for Colton. I'd rather have two amazingly matched P1s. We're going to find out. But the answers to both of that weigh heavily on whether we have 
true big three or not. My guess is we're going to have a big two, Ganassi and Penske, and uh, well, it's it's upon the interlopers to prove that they're worthy of not only being truly in the big three, but also putting up enough of a fight to bother the big two. Uh, Jordan Darwin, you're asking if Mid-Ohio's done anything in the runoff area where Simon crashed. Uh, you say, given the gravity of his injuries, how could the series and track leave it as is? Um, had a good long call with Simon today, by the way. Just always love speaking with him. Um, I hear you. I hear you. I don't disagree. It has been the way it is for a really long time. It is prone to the type of outcomes we saw with Simon's crash. Lose the brakes, uh, rear wing fails, and you spin off. Something like that at the end of this crazy, long, fast downhill straight. Go flying across um, an area that is below the track, so therefore you can go flying, dig in, and then cartwheel or barrel roll. Um, It's another great question. I don't, I have to raise my hand and say, should have thought of it. Embarrassed that I didn't. Um, but uh, I will need to reach out and inquire. Uh, Jordan also says, thanks for the racer article update on him. Hoping he's back in a car soon. Do you think a car might allow a team a free test day to test him for a medical evaluation? Um, kindly says, praying for you and your family. I do. I do. Uh, I know when I spoke to Mike Shank uh, and said, hey, I don't know. I feel like I might have forced him into this a little bit, but uh, said, hey, when Simon is ready, you willing to um, make a car available for him to, uh, you know, kind of showcase himself and show teams he's back and fully ready? And he said yes. And and Mike Shank is a good, good person who I absolutely believe would stand on his word. So, how that exactly would work, meaning does Shank have to use one of his, quote, evaluation days on Simon? Or would the series agree that, you know, maybe this falls out the out of the regular window of expectation? And, you know, series hinders Pagano's ability to prove he is ready to race. That's just not a headline. <laughs> I guess we're talking a lot about headlines tonight, but that's not the headline any of us want to write so i'm guessing uh the team and the series would come up with a way to do that uh that would hopefully not have other teams screaming and complaining also keep in mind one of the things teams do pretty much all times is scream and complain all right so we are at officially just under one hour on the show here don't look at the timestamp; it's a marshall pruitt hour uh let me rocket through your final questions here as best i can charles hall sorry you're back again zmp you're given the task of creating an exhibition event involving indycar imps in the wwe how do you go about doing this uh it's really my question of which track should be host to a weekend long wwe premium live event uh you say hashtag me personally that would be you said WrestleMania, which is so cute, um, but WrestleMania at Indy. I would be in super agreement here. Um, the main thing I'm thinking of, which doesn't really work because the Indy GP weekend in May is a 
Uh, there's a clash there with IMSA racing in Monterey, but knowing, <laughs> I don't know how to do this, but it's where my head is falling here, Charles. Uh, not many folks show up to the Laguna Seca race and not many folks show up to the Indy GP race. So some sort of crossover is what comes to mind here. Exhibition race with WWE. Um, is it a WWE backlash? I don't know. Something like that. Um, I need some sort of mobile squared circle, a mobile ring that can be driven to or set up in the paddock at Laguna Seca. And so, and there's a really healthy WWE loving crowd here in the Bay area. I know been to many events. Uh, the San Jose one in particular usually packs the house and San Jose's closest to Laguna. What if we have a hybrid WWE IMSA, uh, show, I don't know, the Saturday night of the IMSA weekend or something like that in the paddock, hopefully pack the paddock as best you can with fans. And I don't know, I'll just go with straight up WWE wrestlers for sure. But you know, if we can get our guy, Sean Heckman in there, uh, race strategist for, uh, Magnus racing, also the co-conspirator of Ginorth racers as kind of the heel manager guy. Uh, screaming across the ring from Paul Heyman or something like that. We just win. Absolutely win. I wouldn't, I, I don't know if he's going to have any IMSA stuff this year, but I wouldn't put his uh, co-host and our friend Ryan Eversley in the match because, you know, you know, we don't want to bust him up, but we'd come up with some fun things there for sure. I, I don't know why. And again, he's retired from this, but do we get a father and son team of for, like legend Hall of Famer, former Corvette racing chief mechanic, Dan Binks, who's about as burly as they come, and his son, chief mechanic uh, on the Ganassi Cadillac racing program, Phil Binks, as a tag team. I mean, that's, that's almost like the Wyatt family in, in some sort of way uh, coming together there. That, that would be hilarious. And on the IndyCar side, I'm just thinking, I know it'd be, I don't know how we get it there. Maybe we just set up a separate kind of expanding ring, but at the same time, right? And so knowing that the Indy GP is on a Saturday, IMSA race is on a Sunday in Monterey, but I'm just thinking kind of a coast to Midwest kind of thing where we have a separate secondary ring set up, I don't know, in the paddock, wherever, somewhere. Uh, yeah, it, back behind the Pagoda. That's the perfect place. Right? I mean, if not... Uh, across the yard of bricks. I don't know how we police that, but uh, at, at minimum, behind the pagoda and have this dual event going on. I think that's, it's not exactly a combo IndyCar IMSA weekend, but yeah, I'm just trying to think of ways to get more people to both events. And if you can turn it into kind of sort of a WWE crossover thing with both series, um, that's what comes to mind. Sorry it took so long to get to that, brother. Uh, Ken Anderson, how you doing, pal? It says, currently there's a glut of talented drivers wanting seats. Am I correct in my line of thinking that 2025 will be even worse? See, I'm thinking that the drivers looking for rides this year aren't going anywhere. Um, there also seems to be several NXT drivers ready for the show in 25. Uh, this isn't even counting drivers from F1 and other series. What do you think? Is this going to be a story or a non-issue? Uh, all depends. I know that's a non-answer to your question, so I apologize. But so 
is anybody at Team Penske truly available? Um, I'm sorry, up for, you name it, up for re-signing? Could they go elsewhere, retire otherwise after 2024? I need to do a bit more research on that because I'm often confused because uh, it's not uncommon for a person uh, there at least to sign an extension and the team often tells them don't say anything about it. So it's not exactly one of those always public news kinds of things. But if you look at who's what and where, I mean, I don't foresee Scott Dixon retiring anytime soon. He's got a contract through the next couple of years, so that is awesome. Um, Polo, multi-year contract. Uh, I'm sure Linus Lundqvist as well, probably Marcus Armstrong. I think Kiffin Simpson will probably drive there for the rest of his life. I don't know if any seats are going to be available after 2024 at Ganassi. Could be wrong, but I don't know. And Errol McLaren um, could be potential changeover. Uh, for sure, Ken. So, spoken of many times, Alexander Rossi heading into the final season of his contract. The team is exceptionally interested in seeing how he goes. And if he is not kind of up there running with Pato, I don't know if an extension is going to be offered, so that seat could very well be open. Uh, our guy, Malukas, who just got hurt, incumbent upon him to give Errol McLaren a reason to keep him in the car after 2024. I think he'll surprise them and do super well and get that nod. But if by chance he doesn't, uh, Errol McLaren could have two of its three seats wide open. Um, Andretti, what? Uh, they are locked in, to my knowledge, with Herta, good old Kirk Kirkwood, and Marcus Erickson for a couple years. Kirk got an extension last season. Colton signed a big new deal for a long, long time. Marcus coming in is brand new in a multi-year, so he's all good there. You never know what A.J. Foyt, right? Uh, I would assume Stingray will be there for a couple years, at least provided good sponsorship continues to be brought. The 14 car, driven by Santino Ferrucci, has been plagued year after year with funding issues. So that could be one that, uh, you know, I love the kid and hope he doesn't go, but that could be open next year unless their fortunes change. Um, coin, it's always a roll of the dice. You never know. Those are always two seats that could be open at the end of the year. Carpenter, uh, Renus VK, uh, heads into the final year of his contract. Uh, there was a very good team that, thought they were going to be able to sign him last year and the carpenter side quashed that before it went anywhere uh, obviously christian rasmussen coming in on a road and street courses only deal plus indy 500 um if he shows well i'm sure they'll want to hold on to him because that kid seems like a rocket but renus i think that unless the carpenter team has a big upgrade in performance and I do think they're going to be better this year. But unless it is something that really captivates Renus, I think he's at a place where, barring that huge jump forward, he will, without a doubt, look at a Arrow McLaren or similar. Or Arrow McLaren, which I know has had an interest in him, will be looking at him hardcore. Um, 
that's a seat question mark for sure. All about the team can on how they level up or don't level up. Hunkos Hollinger. Uh, I know they're super happy to have Augustine back for a second year. I don't know if there's a plan to do a year three, if this is kind of a take it year by year, or if this is considered a experiment with a bit of a uh, expiration date on it. Obviously, Romain Groshaw coming in uh, would assume it's on a multi-year deal. Hope that all is going to work out well for him to stay there, but there might be one seat open there at the end of the season. Meyershank Racing, I believe they're relatively locked in to Blomqvist and Felix Rosenqvist. Um, I keep hearing, I don't know if this is the fact, but I keep hearing that if Shank were to be able to find a new factory-grade IMSA GTP program, that how's this? If for whatever reason things don't work out for Tom and IndyCar, and i got to believe they will, and Shank has another GTP program emerge, I don't think Tom has to worry about a paycheck uh, for quite some time because I think the team's going to make use of him wherever uh, he's needed. Felix, though, multi-year, so yeah, I don't foresee that seat opening up at all. And then as we get to the end, RLL, always the question mark for Graham. How long is he going to continue? I shouldn't say always, but definitely in recent years. So is this his farewell tour? Will he go for one more or two again? We don't know, but that 15 car is certainly a question mark. Uh, Pietro Fittipaldi coming in. Hoping that could be a multi-year for him, but I don't know if that's it yet. Uh, Lungard, uh, I am forgetting whether he has a new contract in place or not, but uh, I, as I last remember things, uh, he definitely, I think, stood out as someone who could be a free agent at the end of 2024. And, yeah, uh, whether it is Errol McLaren... Um, Penske or you name it and RLL as well that's a guy too Ken who could be on the move which would open up a seat uh, could be on the stay who knows so uh, before as you mentioned we get to any of those F1 drivers or folks who are aspiring from other wherever we do indeed have a situation where yeah there could be a decent amount of movement as is. Haven't spoken about Callum Eilat and his desire to come back full-time. Um, there could indeed. Nolan Siegel, uh, that kid's going to be full-time in IndyCar in 2025, I have no doubt. Um, there should be an okay number of seats put up for grabs for sure. Could be even more potentially. And what we don't know is if it's going to be more shuffling of the deck chairs here of all right, this person stays in the series and just goes to another team, or if uh, new talent or returning talent uh, takes some of those spots. All right, we're getting down to the last couple. Our pal Jeremiah Morrell says, is there a world where the fastest 33 cars still make the Indy 500 a decade from now? So we seem to keep coming back to the 25 and 8 argument every few years, and I'm not sure it's even worth the emotional attachment anymore. Very few of the qualifying traditions are still there, but this one still is. Ten years from now, no. Um, no. I think as I opened last week's, might have been even been the week before, I don't remember, show. Uh, 
if you even hint to team owners that they will have the ability to have guaranteed starting positions at the biggest race that pays them the most, they will always say yes and never let it go. And so this is yet to be formalized with this leader circle membership thing. I feel like we might have been among the first to really formalize this thought about locking in at least the top 22. Did that back in August last season. But again, Penske had been talking about this for a long time. So again, I don't think anybody can lay claim to being the first, but just saying, like, we've been talking about this for a long time. Um, Penske wants it, has wanted it before he owned the series, continue to want it since he bought the series. I don't see this going away as long as Roger is driving this topic. If others were to take charge of this topic, could that change? Of course it could, but again, (laughs) hey, Chip Ganassi, uh, do you want a system that guarantees all your cars or most of your cars or whatever are going to be in the Indy 500 every year? The answer is always going to be yes. Everybody, run down the list. Every single person is going to say yes because for them it is the best business decision anyone could make for them. So 10 years from now, Jeremiah, if we aren't in a position where there are a heck of a bunch of guaranteed starting spots uh, taken by the Leader Circle membership group, I will be shocked. Um, John Wire, John Weir, not sure if I'm murdering your last name, brother. Saying your video on McLaren's new engineering trailer. Couldn't help but notice Foyt Racing's transporter. Since the teams use the same tub and lease their engines and are limited in practice, uh, besides damper changes, what do other top teams spend their money on to get an edge? A couple things, and I won't go too long here, John, if you want to send this one in again. Actually, let's do that. Jerry, if you can move this towards the end of, or I'm sorry, to the front of the next episode, I'll come back to this because it warrants a longer discussion and we've already surpassed the official one hour of the show. Um, Our pal from the islands at unpaid intern how are you brother says do you see oliver ask you returning to indycar in the coming years know that i mentioned him as a potential stand-in for davy malukas if there's a need i don't otherwise though and it makes me sad this really to me is the last year if he does not get a call up somewhere because there's no full-time seats not aware of any team looking at him for the Indy 500. But if by chance there's no reason, no need for him to get the nod to stand in for a driver who's sick for a couple races or injured, whatever it might be, barring that, I think the window will have closed. And it'll make me crazy sad for the kid. But it's that old thing, right? <laughs> if your job is a mailman and you are no longer delivering the mail are you still a mailman (laughs) if you've been out of work as a mailman for six months or maybe even a year it's a thing you've been known as for many years but you've been out of work for a little while folks still thinking you as the mailman two years three years four years out of work i don't know if folks still view you as the mailman you'd hope that person wouldn't be showing up in their clothes as the mailman, but same thing here. 
Everyone knows Oliver Askew is a race car driver and an exceptionally good one in anything you put him in. In IndyCar specifically, though, he hasn't been in one for a while. It went well his last time, that would being with what Ray Holliderman Lanigan when they were sampling third drivers, but it's still been a little while. And unless he's back in here somewhat soon, I think within the paddock, he will just be forgotten as an option. Again, that would make me crazy sad, but that's the reality of these things. All right, we're closing the show with our pal. Um, Amy, you sent in a question. Uh, Austin Taylor, those are two as well. Jerry, that might be great to throw in for next week, assuming we don't have a crazy long show. Um, Lance Snyder, you made the cut above the red line of death. Minister of Mirth for our show, who we love. Kind of. Uh, He says, with some large team entries for the 500, why wouldn't the teams have properly prepped 500 cars as spares in case a primary is wadded up? See, road course backups are usually well off the pace, and potential championship contenders could lose a heck of a bunch of points due to an incident. It's a great point. I mean, it really is... uh, There are some components that teams consider to be their best. And the bigger teams will try multiple floors, for example. Test them. See exactly which one stands out as the best. Some don't. And who knows? Maybe among all the different underbodies that they have, none of them stand out as better than the other. But again, some teams might find one that they go, ooh. Uh, we don't know what it is, but that one's got a little bit of extra zhush in it. Uh, it could be other mechanical parts and components they feel are have a tiny fraction less mechanical drag, therefore improves the car's speed. Uh, you put the best components you have among the real Indy 500 contenders on your super speedway car. If you happen to have two sets of that, I would imagine that prepping a full super speedway polished body fitted perfected car would be a thing that they do. But I just say, Lance, it's not always the case, but I know it's often enough the case to where that primary car is the primary for a reason. Um, and it's not only had the most work and time in perfecting it during the off season, but it's got what a team considers to be the real magic sauce with whichever componentry that makes it that tiny bit faster and more consistent um, than another chassis. So I'd say that's the probably the main reason. To your greater point, I am still somewhat surprised that at least the true big, big teams, the Andretti's, the McLaren's, the Ganassi's, and Penske's don't have, as you say, just seemingly a turnkey speedway optimized car just waiting for an engine waiting for a drivetrain to get dropped in and go um so you raise a great point theory they should all be doing this but maybe now you know why it's not really a common practice okay that's the end of the show (laughs) way longer than i thought i thought i was going to get done in time to go after suffering a really depressing and crushing uh, loss uh, by my 49ers to watch uh, at least the end of the Golden State Warriors game. But I'm looking and seeing now 
they beat the Utah Jazz. So maybe I can catch that in replay. And I'm also seeing a headline here on ESPN that says, yesterday's Super Bowl is the most... Uh, the most watched program in television history, not NFL history, television history. What? Says it averaged 123.4 million viewers across television and streaming platforms. I'm just reading from the story here on ESPN. Uh, That shattered last year's mark of 115.1 million for Kansas City's last play victory over the Philadelphia Eagles. This represents a 7% increase. So, just so I'm clear, uh, our misery here in the Bay Area seen by more people than ever. Um, so that thing about sports is on the decline and uh, the younger generation doesn't want to watch and you go, well, the older generation's already been captured. So if we've got more people, i got to think that they're coming from somewhere and uh, not the folks who are already watching it. So who knows? Maybe it's more old people who didn't care before. Maybe we need IndyCar's version of a driver dating someone who's amazing at making music. I don't know. Um, But whatever it is, 123.4 million viewers, most watched TV, most watched program and i would have to believe they're referring to american television history that is insane okay even more depressing (laughs) the thing that just made me so grumpy and like really down for most of the day and uh that filtered throughout the house and probably among the millions who live here uh good to know more people saw our misery (laughs) than ever before anyways Thank you all for all the questions you sent in. Apologies for the show going longer, but I don't know. I figure, A, these things are free. B, you don't have to listen to them all at once. And C, I don't know, A and B again. Um, Appreciate you all the questions you sent in. Jerry, appreciate you. Hopefully the couple of uh, requests to carry things over and move them towards the front uh, wasn't too much. Other than that, thanks to our partners in the show. Check out the Pruitt store.com uh, stuff please make it yours and like I said if you want to pick up some more of the uh, the new DeFerrin tribute stickers got some of the smaller 2 inch ones that just showed up over the weekend and happily throw those in the package as a token of appreciation for y'all other than that we'll speak to you for this little show next week <laughs>